think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Dun, dun, dun. It's going to be a good day. I got my coffee, and I am here to tell you that even the weird stuff is from God. And here's the fun part. We're not going to read all the weird stuff. As a matter of fact, I don't think we're going to read any of the really weird stuff because that's not the point. We are here continuing our look at Scripture from a worldview perspective. In other words, how you think about your world based on what your Bible says. Because this is part of the Christian call. And we are in Ezekiel, which is where a lot of the, uh, the oddities of Scripture dwell. And I'm going to spend basically no time on them because, to, uh, to quote the great prophet The Rock, it doesn't matter. Now, what does matter? It came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month while I was by the river Kabar among the exiles, the heaven were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar, Kabar, Kibar, Kabar, however you want to say it, I don't care. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. A couple of fun notes. It's 593 BC. How do I know that? Because the exile of King Jehoiakim was in 597. So the fifth year would be 597, 596, 595, 594, 593. See how that works? Ezekiel is 30 years old. That's the only good understanding of that in the 30th year thing. If you want to come up with something else, you're more than welcome to. I'm not going to argue with you because I don't care. And Ezekiel is receiving a vision. What is the point of this vision? As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. The point of the vision is to demonstrate the glory and the majesty of God. Why? Because he is. Full stop. And you're sitting there going, what do you mean he is? He is what? No, no, no. He is. And because he is, you have some things you need to answer. Because he is, we are dependent. Because he is, we are upheld by him. Because he is, we must deal with him as either savior or judge. Because he is, he will be and will always. Therefore, he is faithful and he accomplishes all on behalf of his children. In other words, our foundations for how we think through scripture are based on God, because of who God is, revealing what he has done. So, you get to chapter 2, and you get the commission of Ezekiel. Said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, and he said, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. 
As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit upon scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not. In other words, trust who, Ezekiel? God. Proclaim who, Ezekiel? God. Why? Because God is God, and they are not. Therefore, you will rightly proclaim who he is, what he calls. And you will do so in bravery and in security, knowing that even if they accost you, you will stand in his presence. Even if they attempt to kill you, God's word will have accomplishment. Why? Because he is God, and we are not. Then he said to me, chapter 3, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me his scroll. He fed me this scroll and he said, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. In other words, Ezekiel's entire life is going to be based on what? The word that God gives him. At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, notice how Ezekiel keeps being addressed. I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked of his wicked way that he may live. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked ways, he shall die, but you have delivered yourself. In other words, you're not responsible for what they do, but you are responsible for how you live and what you say. So Ezekiel builds upon the message that God has given to him. We see the siege of Jerusalem, the defiling of God's people, the destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Well, chapter 6, there's idolatrous worship. That's a problem. Chapter 7, there's promised punishment. Why? They transformed the beauty of his ornaments into pride. They made the images of their abominations and their detestable things with it. Therefore, I will make it an abhorrent thing to them. I will give it into the hands of foreigners as plunder, to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they will profane it. I will also turn my face from them, and they will profane my secret place, and robbers will enter and profane it. Never forget, Israel has walked away from God. Israel has profaned his worship. Israel is running brothels in the temple. Israel is forsaking the assembly and the feasts and the sacrifices because they are offered with the wrong motivations and with the wrong ends in mind. And it's because of that, their rebellion and their sin and their unwillingness to come to God for healing and redemption that they have been rejected. It is because of that sin that the judgment is being poured out. So you get the vision of what will happen in Jerusalem, the abominations that will be brought forth. And you are given the vision of slaughter. Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. That's not good. God will not allow a sinful people to wantonly shake their fists at him and declare their own sovereignty. He will not allow it. He will doubly not allow it when that pagan people do it in his name. That is Israel. 
that is the promised people in the promised land forsaking the covenant, doing all the pagan things for all the pagan reasons, in all the pagan ways, but slapping the name of God upon it as if that makes it clean. They are the utmost of false teachers. This is the problem. So what happens? The glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of God of Israel hovered over them. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Kabar. So I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, and each one four wings, and beneath their wings was form of human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the, by the river Kabar. Each one went straight ahead. So in other words, what are you seeing? God forsaking not his people, but forsaking the people who have forsaken him. This is where understanding the work of the prophets is so important because it mirrors all the work that God has done. And that is why chapter 11 is exactly where it is. I mean, this is a lot of judgment. I mean, a lot of judgment. We're wiping out everything and everybody. Chapter 11. Thus says the Lord God, Your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of the city, are the flesh, and this city is the pot. But I will bring you out of it. You have feared a sword, so I will bring a sword upon you, the Lord God declares. And I will bring you out in the midst of the city and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments against you. You will fall by the sword. I will judge you to the border of Israel, so you shall know that I am the Lord. This city will not be a pot for you, nor will your flesh be in the midst of it, but I will judge you to the border of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, and nor have you executed my ordinances, but you have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Give us a king that we be like the nations. That's not the point. Same chapter. Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and its abominations from it, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people, and I shall be their God. Salvation in the midst of judgment. It's almost like the precise work of God is capable of accomplishing multiple things at one time. Who would have thunk it? Again, in a universe created and run by God, we are accountable to him. He is the preserver both in salvation and in judgment. He will be faithful to his promises, and he will be faithful unto his people. He will accomplish all that he has promised, and he will sanctify to the end his people by carrying them to the day of completion. These are the lessons that we learn from his work in Genesis. These are the lessons that we see being applied. If you forget these lessons, you destroy these pillars, you start putting weird stuff into your Bible. If you, get, if you have gotten nothing else out of this rundown, as I'm scratching like the dog, if you can hear that, sorry. If you've gotten nothing else, it is hopefully the ability to see the totality of Scripture, because this is the thing that the modern American Christian and really the modern Western Christian has done a terrible job of, which is seeing, seeing Scripture 
as a unit. Instead, we subdivide it and we break it down. And look, books and chapters and verses are infinitely helpful, okay? You don't have to, you know, forever be like, it says somewhere because you can actually go look up where that somewhere is without having to scan through 47,000 pages. But at the same time, it encourages us too much to divide Scripture not along the lines of its natural units, where thought changes, where ideas shift, but rather just simply because there's a verse. So we have to take each verse as a unit. Now, can you do that and be faithful? Yes. It's hard, but it can be done. Better to see the story by not just looking at the individual parts, but by understanding the parts as they fit into the whole. In other words, we study the forest by studying the trees, but we always remember that the trees are part of the forest. So we see patterns, and we see overarching ideas and themes. When you forget that part of it, you are able to insert so many things that just break so many ways. So, chapter 12, Ezekiel is working on the exile. Chapter 13, we get back to some good old-fashioned condemnation. We're condemning the false prophets in 13. We're condemning the, the idolaters in chapter 14, warning that the city will not be spared because in chapter 15, Jerusalem herself is condemned. She is the useless vine. In other words, she is no longer attached to the root. You start to understand Jesus' parables a little bit better. The examples of what's going on and what has gone wrong. Chapter 16, in the midst of all this judgment, though, you see what? Mercy. Forgiveness. In one of the longest chapters, I mean, 63 verses. Let's read the end of it. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your, hum your humiliation when I have forgiven you all that you have done, the Lord God declares. See, this is the thing that people get messed up. I don't understand these prophets. It's like they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. No. They're talking to multiple groups of people at the same time. They are talking to a people who are claiming falsely the name of God. They face judgment. They are talking to a people who have flat out rejected God. They are facing judgment. They are talking to a people that are struggling with their sin and clinging to the hope that God provides. They are longing for redemption in facing mercy. And they are also talking to a faithful people who are in the midst of overcoming, who are being sanctified and progressing to the day of eternity. They too are facing mercy, grace, and redemption. When you are talking to all of these groups at the same time, it sounds like a warning of judgment with a promise of hope. And it sounds like a message of destruction wrapped in a message of salvation because you're not leaving anyone out. This is what God is doing. This is what God has always been doing, going all the way back to the beginning. 
faithfully accomplishing all of these things, faithfully dealing with his people for their good and for his glory. You get to chapter 17. You get the rebellion. You get some history here. The word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Say, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took its king and princes and brought them with him to Babylon. He took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be in subjection, not exalting itself, but keeping his covenant that it might continue. But he rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt that he might give them horses and troops. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Can he indeed break the covenant and escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the country of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke in Babylon, he shall die. Notice the parallel. Stop and answer this question first. Is Babylon good? The answer is no. Is the king of Babylon a holy and righteous man? No. Did you promise? Did you swear a covenant? Well, yeah. See, here's the issue. They didn't learn anything. They didn't learn a thing. You broke God's covenant. That's why judgment came upon you. This is what Jeremiah was warning. Jeremiah told you, look, when Babylon comes, don't rebel. Accept your spanking. Cry out and trust in God. You'll be better off. And the people didn't listen. This is judgment, not from Babylon, from Yahweh. This is discipline, not through Babylon, but through God. He's using the work of Babylon, and he will deal with their sin, trust me. But now, he's dealing with you. Be blessed. Trust in him. Repent. Walk faithfully. That's the goal, that's how this walks. In other words, be Habakkuk. Read Habakkuk, it'll do you good. <clears throat> be Habakkuk, if you remember those old children. Be Habakkuk, B-E, Habakkuk. There you go. Why? <coughs> because if you can't be bothered to keep that good covenant, then why am I shocked you're breaking this one? And if I won't let you get away with breaking that covenant, I'm at least going to give you the opportunity, the opportunity to demonstrate that you've learned something by keeping this one. And they don't. Therefore, nothing good is coming. The word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? See, this is the brokenness of humanity is Israel looked at everything that was going on and said, we didn't do anything wrong. It was our grandfathers who sinned against you. It was our parents' generation who wronged you, and you're punishing us. As I live, declares the Lord, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. Why? Because he's creator, and we are all dependent upon him, and we answer to him. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. End of discussion. End of discussion. He is judge. He is jury. He is executioner. He is the one who will deal. That shouldn't be a comfort. And I'm serious. It shouldn't be. It should be a warning. 
the soul who sins will die. Who is that? Yeah, you just found the problem, didn't you? You just realized how bad off this is. This should be a warning. Israel shouldn't hear that and go, oh good, you're going to stop punishing me for the sins of my father. It should be, I am an unclean man and I live amongst an unclean people. But they don't ever seem to get there because they're a broken people, a ruined humanity who are pagan to the core. Not all of them. But to the many who heard that message, that was their problem. So what do you get? You get a lament. Why are we lamenting? Because God is dealing. Why is God dealing? Because Israel has a lovely history that spans chapters and books about their sin. Therefore, judgment is coming. A sword, sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Uh-oh. God will accomplish all that he has done, all that he has promised. Why? Because these people know better. Chapter 22 is a series of rundowns about how Israel has sinned, what they have forsaken, why they have walked astray. And then chapter 23 is what? What are the consequences of this sin? What's going to happen when this sin is revealed and you stand before God and realize that we in trouble because we, we are not walking the direction we're supposed to walk? And then you get the sign of it in chapter 24. And then, just in case you were wondering, Chapter 25, judgments on Ammon, Moab, Edom, the Philistines, Tyre. A lament for him. Why? Because you had so much hope. You had so much more. You had so much of a better chance. 29, judgment on Egypt. Why? The same reason Jerusalem's being judged. For the same reason that we lament. Because there was such a better chance chance there was such great hope and yet we now have nothing because the soul who sins will die whether that soul is ammonite edomite egyptian assyrian babylonian judean the soul who sins will die because we are all going to answer to him who created us to whom we must deal and the hope is that as we trust in him, that as we call upon him for grace and mercy, he will be faithful to his promises to redeem from the curse, to set aside our iniquity and to wash us and cleanse us, to put in a new heart as Ezekiel promised, and to strengthen us to walk in sanctification as he has been carrying us along thus far. The message of the prophets is a message of the gospel. The message of the gospel has been a message that has been proclaimed since day one because it's a reminder that God created. Therefore, we answer. And our answer is probably not good, which means we need to do what? Trust in him who is patient and merciful and long-suffering, who accomplishes good for his people, and cry out to him for his redeeming work. Anything less is paganism. Anything less is to basically turn into the four-year-old. I do it. I do it. Four-year-old. Two-year-old. I don't want your help. I do it. That's judgment. 
That's destruction. That's humanity. By his grace, he has preserved us and persevered with us. By our faith, he cleanses and redeems us. No new message. No new thing when Jesus shows up. A building upon all that has come before. So, next time, we'll finish Ezekiel, try to make some more sense out of the more hopeful good news portions, because... I want to show you guys as we go through this that, yes, there is redemption in the midst of judgment, but there's also a message of specific redemption because God is not leaving us without a hope, and he's not leaving us without an understanding of his work, but rather he is revealing it fully and demonstrating that it is not the people who are perfect who he redeems but the ones who are in desperate need, the ones who are facing his wrath upon sin and judgment, who he is working amongst and who he is rescuing. So we will pick that up again. Remember these lessons. Read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.